Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Alex Banco. Before we get into my conversation with Eric Tanner, CEO of OnPoint, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. Success isn't just getting to PDPM, it's about being ready for what comes next. Learn how you can prepare to go confidently into quality-based care with Point Click Care. Eric Tanner's skilled nursing company, OnPoint, attracted headlines in 2018 when one of its landlords, MedEquity's Realty Trust, decided to transfer operations of 10 buildings to a new provider. But Tanner and OnPoint remain committed to the company's eight skilled nursing facilities, five in Texas and three in New Mexico, along with additional hospice and home health business lines. I wanted to find out how an operator moves forward from such a setback and how Tanner's company seeks to put big ideas about post-acute care coordination into practice. Here's our conversation. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time today. Excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, excited to be here. Thanks, Alex. So let's just dive right into it. The only time we've reported on you guys on Skilled Nursing News, you went through a retenanting recently with MedEquity's Real Estate Investment Trust. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that process and kind of your expansion plans going forward or your outlook coming out of that? I know we talked before the call, uh, before we started recording rather very briefly about that process and how you're moving forward. So let's start with that. Yeah, so we had 10 properties with Med Equities. I think the original lease was signed in 2015. If you remember, it, 2015 was somewhat the height of the market uh, as it relates to skilled nursing valuations. And so it was signed, and for about a year and a half, it was actually going pretty well. But what happened to us wasn't had like what happened to most of the rest of the industry, specifically in here in Texas, is that most of these buildings were rurally based. And the strike price, as it relates to just the, the purchase price that MedEquities paid for these buildings and the rents that we were paying, it, it just became somewhat untenable for us to keep up with all the things that have been sort of widely reported on, right? Uh, lower length of stays, certainly uh, coupled with you know significant Medicare Advantage penetration in some of these markets, which made it you know essentially difficult for us to, to keep operating these buildings in a way that would be, you know, beneficial to med equities. And so they retenanted, which I don't know if you're familiar with coming to Creative Solutions, which I think now is, if not the largest, they're certainly one of the largest operators in the state of Texas. And honestly, Gary Blake and his team at Creative, they do a great job at running these particular types of facilities, which are sort of your more traditional sniffs um, that, you know, in, in more both sort of suburban and, and rurally located areas. And so we, we wanted to make sure that the, the buildings went to a, a great operator, which they did in, in Creative Solutions, and we want to make sure the patient share was minimally affected. So we didn't want to fight it or kind of dig our heels in as it relates to MedEquities because they'd been a good partner with us. Um, they you know got into the details with us as a, seeking to understand our business. And so I think it, it went relatively well from a transitionary standpoint. I think ultimately Creative Solutions benefited a little bit from a, a lease was evidently in a lease cut, but that's sort of where we were. And, you know, that took up about six to nine months of, of last year. So, you know, from a strategic standpoint, I think it gets us back to what we are good at doing, right? And, and what our focus is, is really, you know, a transitional type model uh, where we go into more urban-based centers where there's large amounts of populations and try to be value-add for our for our partners, right? Which tend to be the people paying us for their for, for our services. 
Yeah. So tell me a little bit about one of the things that I always find interesting about the, the transitional model, especially in the urban markets, is kind of the payer mix in terms of are you going after private pay? Are you going after Medicare Advantage? I mean, obviously, Medicaid is not in the cards if it's more of a transitional care, kind of more rehab intensive environment. Tell me a little bit about the payer mix. And, you know, how do you set yourself apart? Because I know, especially in a, in a market like Texas, where, you know, you don't have a certificate of need, there can be a lot of competition, especially among the new construction, nicer rehab kind of buildings. So what's your strategy for that? Yeah. So there've been a couple of ways we've set, our part, set ourselves apart. I, th- I think one of the things that's big for us, and we talk about it a lot within our team, is this idea of partnership. I'm of the opinion, Alex, that, that our industry is essentially a utility as it relates to having conversations with payers, right? When I go and have a conversation with a Medicare Advantage payer, for example, I'm one of 40 or 50 people in that bucket, right? And, and the reality of the situation is, is as I've gathered, is, is they don't, you know, when we sit down at the table, they're speaking French and I'm speaking, you know, Italian, <laughs> right? We, we kind of understand each other. But their needs are very, very different from my needs, right? I want to talk about rug rates and I want to talk about length of stay. They care more about total cost of care and, you know, admissions per thousand into a hospital and, and RAF scoring. And so what we've tried to do at OnPoint is we've tried to sort of situate ourselves in one, we've tried to be, become more educated on the idea that I talk about is the jobs to be done. What are our paying customers telling, you know, what do they want out of us, right? And that, if we, if we can figure that out, then we can create really broad, beneficial partnerships. And honestly, Alex, sometimes it's not, you know, high paying Medicare Advantage patient populations. We have a building in Albuquerque, New Mexico, for example, that's 369 beds that, you know, of the 369 beds, 300 of those patients inside are Medicaid patients, but there's an absolute need for that building there, right? Because that building fulfills a societal need. It fulfills a sort of an economic need for the city and for the state. And so we actually have some really interesting relationships that have developed out of that. So when we talk about, you know, buildings, they have to have a purpose. And some of the purposes of our buildings are different. For example, here in Texas, we have two buildings that are situated inside of hospitals, two operating companies that are actually inside of Texas Health Resources or THR hospitals, right? Those are very different from, you know, my 369-bed building in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But they've all done relatively well because they serve a specific purpose with a specific partner. Tell me about the facility in New Mexico. You know, how do you survive in a building like that? What are some of the interesting partnerships that you have to create to survive in a building that's so heavily Medicaid? Because if there's one thing that I hear, it's that, you know, the Medicaid majority building is kind of on its way out, or it's a very difficult place to kind of a space to kind of operate in. How do you make that work? Well, think about it from the payer perspective. So if you look at, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is this idea of, you know, 10% of the population accounts for about 50 to 60% of the total spend in healthcare, right? And that 10% of the population tends to have, you know, two or three chronic conditions. They tend to have some psychosocial issues, and they tend to have some issues in terms of social determinants of health, which, you know, make it more costly to care for them. Not all of those patients are Medicare Advantage patients, right? In fact, a a good portion of them are Medicaid patients that cost health plans quite a bit of money. And so for our, what we do is in those interactions, right, specifically as it relates to Medicare or in Medicaid, is we partner with the health plans to sort of say, listen, you know, this building serves a, a vital need, right? In that it keeps patients that are somewhat difficult to manage from a cost perspective, right? It keeps them safe. It creates a community where they're 
not only valued, but where they're well cared for from a health perspective. And, and oh, by the way, it's much effective and efficient as it relates to cost for us to care for them versus them bouncing in between the hospital nine or 10 or 12 times in a calendar year, right? Because that's when I talk about, you know, creating partnerships, that's what the plans care about. They care very much about the fact that if that patient goes to the hospital, I've likely lost money on that patient for the calendar year. And so if, if as an operator, I can show you, listen, I'm going to help you with, with that specific population. Can you help me as it relates to, you know, some interesting contractual opportunities, you know, with your other members? You know, for example, on the Medicare Advantage side in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we've been able to negotiate some interesting contracts as it relates to, you know, taking risk on length of stay and, and having almost a lump sum payment per, per post-acute episode, right? But we've done that because we've gone into a market and we've said, hey, okay, listen, what do the payers care about, right? What, are they, what do they want us to do? If we go in and start talking about, you know, 85% of rug, we're going to see the eyes glaze over. They're not going to, that's just not what they work in day in and day out. But if we go and we say, hey, here's a targeted approach to your chronic care population. And oh, by the way, you know, we know them very well because we know how to deal with chronic care populations because we've been doing it for you know, 40, 50, 60 years in our industry, then we're, we're able to kind of create you know, steps to a path of you know, mutually beneficial partnerships. Yeah, see, now, that's interesting because I know when people hear risk sharing, especially in the skilled nursing world, there's a lot of fear about that, you know, especially because with a lot of different factors, you know, rehospitalization, some of that stuff is out of a sniff's control. You know, you discharge the patient home and the patient goes back to the hospital and then suddenly you're on the hook for a rehospitalization. Tell me a little bit about your attitudes toward risk sharing, how you try to mitigate your risk while still potentially, you know, gaining in that, because that seems to be the wave of the future. You, you see CMS is kind of done with this idea of, okay, yeah, you can have these new models where you can share in the gains, but there won't be any penalties. That's kind of over now. So what's your attitude to that? How do you approach those kind of partnerships? Yeah, I mean, and, and you said it perfectly. If you look at the tea leaves that CMS is sending out, and, and by this point, they're not tea leaves, they're, they're mandates, right? Yeah. They are desperate for providers to take risk. They want providers to take risk. They want providers to have skin in the game, and they're trying to create these new effective models. And honestly, I'm excited about that because, you know, in a previous life or at the beginning of my career, I was a facility administrator. I ran a skilled nursing home. And I would go into Mrs. Jones's room on a Friday afternoon and say, hey, you don't really need to go home today because, you know, who knows if the home health's going to show up on time. And, you know, if, if, if you leave Monday or Tuesday, you'll be fine and you'll get therapy here over the weekend. And honestly, Alex, I always felt like a little bit of a, I didn't feel good doing that because I, I said, this doesn't make sense, right? My, the incentive for me was just to keep the patient in the bed longer. I mean, and, and anybody who's telling you different isn't telling you the truth. That's where the incentive used to lie, right? And exactly, so yeah. as CMS is sort of changing that, I think it's incumbent upon providers to sort of embrace that because that is where healthcare is going. It's $3.2 trillion or $3.3 trillion of healthcare spend. The spending is not the issue, right? We spend quite a bit of money of, on healthcare in this country. What the issue is, is one, the cost, right? And, and we can effectuate that by how we deliver it in value-based models. So, so we run to risk. We try to move up the premium ladder as quickly as possible. Because we feel like over a 40, 50, 60-year period in this industry, we've developed some really interesting skill sets as it relates to managing chronic disease in a cost-based model, right? If you think about hospitals, hospitals don't do that well, right? Hospitals are where you go, you know, their business model was built to save a life, right? Or to deliver the baby. 
that business model is, you know, whatever you need to do, do it, right? Because that's essentially what we're doing. If you think about the payer model, the payer model was built not to spend money, right? <laughs> that's that's kind of where they're at. They're, they try not to spend money. And they're also very, very good at sort of enrollment, right? And advertising. You don't see a ton of Ensign or Genesis ads on the Super Bowl, but you'll see a lot of Humana and United, right? Because they're really good at enrollment. The SNF model is a cost-based model, right? In fact, we were cost plus for the longest time. And so we actually have a skill set that I think is unique in this marketplace in that we can manage chronic care illness and those with chronic care conditions. And again, remember, those are the 10% that are costing 50, 60, 70 cents of every healthcare dollar. We can manage those in a way that's relatively effective. I tell this story, right? We have these buildings in the hospital units, right? And you know, one's on the sixth floor of a, of a hospital in Arlington, Texas. When a patient transfers from the fifth floor, when they get in the elevator on their bed and transfer from the fifth floor to the sixth floor, did all of a sudden they go from costing the government $2,500 a day to $500 a day? You know, did their health improve $2,000 in the elevator trip up? No, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that's the model that we're working in. And I think, you know, as, as it relates to developing some interesting innovative systems of risk, we can be additive and accretive to the payer because we have that skill set. So wherever possible, we try to demonstrate that skill set, number one, by showing what we can do, right? By showing how we are unique in this infrastructure of, of healthcare delivery. But then number two, by helping them with their problems, right? Because they, they have problems too, you know? And ultimately, when, when you think about sort of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle, if you, if you talk to any operator in the United States, Alex, most would say 80% of my day consists with dealing with vendors, dealing with landlords, dealing with employees, dealing with retention, dealing with recruiting and hiring, right? Those are the issues that tend to kind of filter through most skilled nursing operating companies. But the reality of the situation is none of those issues, vendors or landlords or, you know, quite frankly, even employee retention, none of those things actually generate revenue for your entity, for your operating company. The, the only person that's actually taking money out of their pocket and putting it into your pocket is the federal or state government or people that they've subcontracted with like Medicare Advantage payers. And so what we're trying to do at OnPoint is we're trying to shift our focus to, okay, let's spend, you know, I, I probably won't be able to spend 80% of my time on that just because this is in a hard industry and we're operating at 0.0% you know, profit margins. But can I spend 40, 50, 60% of my time on solving their problems, right? Because their problems, if I solve them, then I'm not necessarily utility, then I'm actually a, a value add. So how do, you, how do you go about identifying those problems and then convincing hospitals that you can solve them? Because I know that's, you mentioned the people speaking different languages when you go into these meetings. And a lot of the times, you know, hospitals kind of, it's, it's an out of sight, out of mind thing. You know, the person's in the sniff and now we really can't track what's going on. We don't really know what's going on. So how, how do you, when you walk into a meeting with a hospital, how do you convince them? You're like, yes, we can be partners. This is what we need to do. And here's how we're going to do it. Yeah. I would say for me over the last two, three years that I've kind of been here at OnPoint, one is it's becoming educated on what my consumer needs, right? And so for Medicare Advantage plans, for example, you know, I've walked into many meetings where I've, you know, polished this the spreadsheets and got the PowerPoint ready. And I say, Hey, average length of stay is, you know, 14 days and it's kind of crickets. Right. And then I'll walk into another meeting and I'll say, okay, 
let me talk to you about how I can help your RAF scoring, which is risk adjustment factor, which is how they determine how they get paid. When I talk about RAF scoring with a Medicare Advantage plan, all of a sudden I have the attention of the room, right? And it's not because I'm some expert on RAF scoring. It's because I've got a little bit of an insight into how as, as a nursing home provider and a home health provider and a hospice provider, we can be beneficial into making sure that your clinicians get the one-on-one visits that they need to make sure that sort of the demographics and the disease burden issues that go into you calculating your reimbursement are met and actualized. You know, another thing that Medicare Advantage payers care quite a bit about is admissions into the hospital, right? So just using easily round numbers, on average, a Medicare Advantage plan, let's say they're paid $1,000 per member per month, right? So multiply by 12, $12,000 per member per year. Okay, if I'm paid $12,000 per member per year, and that member hits the hospital doors and has a workup, that's twenty dollars or $30,000 that I'm not getting back that I'm going to pay for their services. So I'm immediately losing money, right, on anybody who hits the hospital. Well, what about the patients that hit the hospital four, five, six, seven times in a year? Those are the ones that I care a lot about, right? Those are the ones that I need, you know, sort of intense focus. Well, if I, as a skilled nursing facility operator, have insight into who those people are because they're in my facilities (laughs) or they're with my home health company and I can, you know, either divert it or find a lower level of care or work to sort of care in place, well, then all of a sudden I've become worth listening to, right? And so, Alex, I think part of it is just kind of coming to a common language, right? And, And I just... There's not a lot of time in the day for skilled nursing facility operators to do that because it's not like, you know, maybe they're sort of a few few and far between, but I talk to a lot of operators. It's not like we're all sitting on mountains of cash here and we have a ton of investment capital to not burn, but to invest in sort of a higher level of care delivery, right? We're, we're all trying, I talk about it where, you know, when we go to these NIC conferences, we're like ducks in the water where you know, above the water, it looks like we're sort of just swimming, but below the water, our feet are moving as fast as they can, right? Because we're just trying to stay afloat. Yeah, that's I why I, that's- I always think it's funny at conferences where people will just throw out things like, oh yeah, you can just add dialysis or you can just add vent care you know, as, as, as an answer for specialization. And I know I, when I, in my conversations with average operators, it's always like, well, that's all well and good, but I don't have the money for that right now. Yeah, and they, I mean, who does right now? The space over the last two and a half years has gone through a significant down cycle. Now, the good thing is it's a needs-based business. And the other thing is I think as a society, we sort of bought into the social contract that we're going to care for our sick and afflicted, specifically as they age. So I do think, again, the demographics as well as the kind of sort of social compact that we have will continue to ensure that this institutional healthcare business exists both now and into the future. That being said, right, we've got to change how we talk about the problem, right? Because the problem isn't length of stay. You know, skilled nursing facility accounts for 7% of the Medicare budget, okay? You know, we are not the problem. We're the easiest sort of, you know, we're the low-hanging fruit for sure, especially when the government hands hospitals and health systems, you know, risk and says, all right, figure it out. And the hospitals and health systems say, all right, well, we're not going to change what we've done, but you know, if we look at post-acute care episodic spending, if I cut a length of stay from 21 days to 10 days, well, then I've immediately realized my gain. 
you know, so we're at the one end bleeding because our entire business model has changed. <laughs> and at the other end, you know, we're trying to say, but we can be helpful. So it's- along those lines, one of the things that, we, you know, I've heard a lot in my time on the beat, which has been about two years now, which is home health is, you know, that's kind of the new hip option. You know, it's cheaper. It's not as expensive as sniffs. And a lot of people can get that same kind of care at home. At the same time, we have uh, George Hager, who was actually a guest of this podcast in an earlier episode. He said on Genesis's most recent earnings call that the shift from sniff to home is over. Basically, everyone who can be cared for at home is at home, and sniffs are full of people who cannot be cared for at home. As someone who has both in you know his portfolio, I, I wanted to get your take on that. You know, are we nearing an end of this shift to home? Have we kind of reached a peak where those? the shift has kind of reached an equilibrium and how can those two things work together going forward? Because I think that's more of the answer than looking at the, as a competitor, which I think both sides tend to do. Yeah, no, I, first of all, home health is absolutely needed. Right. And, and I think home health will continue to develop and they're going to continue to develop upstream. And I, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. You know, we need to answer for costs in our industry. And so if the prevailing mindset is, we try to use the lowest cost option possible, right? It, it costs less for home health than it does for a skilled nursing facility. That is true. And so it's, you know, it's very easy for a director of an ACO to say, all right, we're just going to utilize the home health. The problem is when you become penny wise and pound foolish, right? The problem is when you say, well, everybody goes to home health without looking at the, you know, actual medical conditions that exist with each individualized person and realize if I send them to home health and they bounce back to the hospital, not once, but twice, but three times, I've, I'm not saving money on home health, right? Having a, maybe a little bit from sort of moving up the acuity change, having a skilled nursing facility involved to mitigate and manage that patient and do so in a way where we're avoiding a rehospitalization and where we're caring in place, that's actually, that's a win for me, right? And so part of it, I think, you know, I talked about becoming educated on the payer side. Part of it is, you know, working with you <laughs> and, and other people to sort of tell our story, right? Because again, I, I say this with kind of knowledge that very few industries in the United States can deliver chronic care like we can, right? We know these patients. These patients have been in our beds for 30, 40, 50 years. We know that it's not just, you know, you know clinical complexity that drives the cost, but it's also the fact that Mrs. Jones's daughter-in-law um, has, you know, some issues that where if we sent her home, her daughter-in-law's working and her daughter-in-law has four kids to feed and she's picking up those children, you know, after school. Mrs. Jones isn't going to be safe at home with her daughter-in-law. Right? Yeah, and that's, I mean, and also if you're, if you're talking about cheaper, you know, skilled nursing facilities are substantially less expensive to the government than a hospital stay, which is why I, I think it's funny when I hear stories from, people who have been in the industry far longer than I've been covering it, talking about how they thought value-based care was going to be a boon to skilled nursing facilities, that it was going to be, you know, the best possible news because, oh, SNFs can do it way cheaper than hospitals. But then all of a sudden home health starts coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that home health will continue to move upscale, right? Because that's essentially kind of what people do, right? If you look at where assisted living is, assisted living is almost skilled nursing 15, 20 years ago, right? They're going to continue to move up scale. And skilled nursing is going to continue to move up scale. I do think that there's a better way to manage costs in this country outside of hospitals, right? And if you look at, I mean, if you look at the 800-pound gorilla, which which I view as united, right? So 
So the federal government has has made the social compact. We're going to care for our aging. And the other thing that they've done is they've sort of, they are siphoning off that risk. If you look at Medicare Advantage growth over the last 10 years, it has grown tremendously. I think that's going to continue to happen. And why do I think it's going to continue to happen? Well, if I'm a politician in any town USA and my constituents think that I'm rationing their care, I'm in big trouble, right? I cannot be a politician of either party where my constituents think that I'm not delivering their health care. However, if one of the four major insurance companies is seen as the ultimate sort of authority on who gets care and who doesn't, or what type of care someone gets and what type of care someone doesn't get, that's okay because that's they're sort of used to that model, right? If you go to the HMO models of the 80s and 90s, that's that's kind of what these insurance companies are. And, and they, they have ways of navigating it and dealing with it. And so what the government's done is said, hey, listen, okay, we're going to allow these Medicare Advantage plans to, you know, give additional, I mean, it just came out yesterday, right? They're going to have even more additional benefits that'll help with their enrollment, right? So if my dad, who's 65, is looking at being a a traditional Medicare patient or or Medicare Advantage patient, I mean, he's going through this right now. He just turned 65. You know, he's trying to figure out who he needs. And he's looking, well, United Healthcare looks good because I've got zero copays, you know, and they cover a couple other things that traditional Medicare won't, right? And so he's going to make that decision to go with United. I think that's going to continue to keep happening. And so as it relates to, you know, which way United's going, and, and this will tie back to our hospital conversation, but then you look at what United's done with Optum. United's profitability over the last six, seven years from its insurance business has remained almost the same. A, a couple ups and downs, but relatively stable. But Optum, right, which is their sister company, I think it, they in 2010, they were accounted for 17% of the United's profits. And in 2017, they accounted for like 44% of United's profits, right? And what is Optum doing? Optum's buying up hospitalist groups with sound physicians. They're buying up primary care groups with DaVita. They're buying up surgical hospitals, right? And so they're trying to essentially create a network across the country where we get away from the top of the cost chain, which tends to be hospitals, right? Don't get me wrong. Hospitals absolutely have a significant need in the United States, right? They do save the life. They are where we go to deliver our children. And and if there's an emergency and I'm in a car accident, I'm going to be going to a hospital and I'll get the best care from probably the best trained physicians in the world. But I don't think hospitals manage chronic care like we do. And so is there a way to work with that population and our industry? And I think there is. And I think what you're seeing sort of from a macroeconomic trend standpoint, is the government allowing us to at least be in the conversation. I mean, if you look at PDPM, that's sort of what that is, right? We're, we're now on not necessarily a level playing field, but our industry is now going to become, maybe not experts, but we're going to become knowledgeable in ICD-10 coding, which didn't really exist for us three or four years ago, which allows us to see a patient not just as a, you know, a person in our specific industry that's siloed off from the rest of the world, but allows us to have conversations about that patient's clinical clinical comorbidities with a home health company and with a hospital, right? Where we're speaking the same language versus speaking different languages. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's obviously CMS's goal. Now we're running into the end of our time, but I wanted to touch on one more subject before we close. And it's something that we don't really cover in the skilled nursing space. It kind of goes into the home health arena more often, but 
as a hospice provider, I'm kind of curious as to where you see the potential partnerships between skilled nursing and hospice, because I've heard anecdotally that having a solid hospice program can help reduce readmissions because it helps develop care plans and it has people thinking about end-of-life plans that may not include a hospitalization if they have a potentially fatal uh, episode. So, you know, where do you see those two kind of care classes merging and diverging over the next couple of years? So I think hospices are critical. I, and I think, in fact, I think it was today, you, you guys had a, a conversation about palliative care as well. Yes. Um, that is such an important piece because if you look at where the, where the sort of spending spikes as it relates to this, you know, that 10% of the population that accounts for 50% of the premium dollar, it's with end-of-life care. It's at the last year of life that there's a huge spending spike, right? And so skilled nursing facilities, working with hospice providers, and, and quite frankly, hospice providers getting some type of compensation for palliative care, I think is absolutely critical because then you can have actual real effective end-of-life conversations or, and it's not all just end-of-life conversations, some of it's about sort of caring in place as well, that don't revolve around reimbursement, right? But the reason that they tend to revolve around reimbursement right now is because there's a hospice benefit or there's a skilled nursing benefit and you kind of have to play within those bubbles. So I think what I'm hopeful for is that CMS continues to move. And I mean, they're really smart people at CMS, right? They see this too. They see that the end of life, you know, the last year of life, there's a spike in spending. And if we, you know, could mitigate, you know, people being readmitted to the hospital and being intubated. And I mean, if you've ever seen someone be intubated at the end of life, it's, it's a pretty dramatic experience, right? It's, it's not a, I mean, it's a hard process, especially for those who are there, right? Caring for their loved ones. And so, you know, fusing that linkage even more and specifically allowing, you know, innovative reimbursement programs to do that, which Medicare Advantage is doing, right? There there are slivers of it. I mean, we had an opportunity, and I'll, I'll be brief, but, but what we had an opportunity to do is we, with our home health and our hospice company in Phoenix, Arizona, we partnered with a Medicare Advantage payer where they paid us a capitated rate for our home health for their members, but they also included in that a portion of, you know, the rate also went to transitional care management and palliative care, right? So I think Medicare Advantage plans are saying there's a there's value for paying for palliative care. Because again, what do they care about? They care about admissions, you know, back to the hospital. They, they care about their RAF score, and they certainly care about their quality metrics that sort of affect their reimbursement. And so anyway, absolutely think there's there's value in skilled nursing facility providers and hospice providers linking up, uh, yeah. specifically to drive reimbursement. Yeah. And I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm excited to see where you guys take it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate it, Alex. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.